To all the people who love Jesus, let me hear you say amen. amen. To all the people who have a testimony, let me hear you say amen. amen. If there's anybody here who's had God answer a prayer for you, can you say amen? If anybody knows that God is a way out of nowhere, let me hear you say amen. Amen. Come on, clap your hands, oh ye people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. God is good. And all the time. I said God is good. And all the time. Hallelujah. Amen. And yes, God is good because he raised up some foot soldiers to assemble some boxes of food yesterday and to lovingly take it out to our friends uh, who are elderly in the community and bless them. And on the 24th of this month, which is Benevolent Sunday, we'll tell you a little bit more about that wonderful adventure because the blessing was really all ours because it's more blessed to give than to receive. But thank you for your stewardship, your gifts to give to God in this house that would allow us to feed God's people who need a little bit of assistance and encouragement. So, uh, so yeah, yeah. Also got some good news for you. Your pastor has been accepted to be an adjunct professor at Trevecca Nazarene University. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. And, uh, and this fall, I will be uh, co-teaching a class for the master's students entitled Theology, Race, and Culture. And I'm also part of a new department called African American Worship Studies. So uh, I'm thankful for this opportunity. I've never been on this side of, you know, the, the collegiate academic experience, but uh, I'm sure God will give me the grace because uh, if he called me to do it, he'll do it through me. Amen. All right, all right. As you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 16, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock, my God, and my redeemer. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being alive. More so, being alive in Christ Jesus. That the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us. And we have received this spirit of adoption whereby we can cry out, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Father. And we know that we know that we know that we're loved. We've been bought with a price and we've been sealed with the spirit until the day of redemption. We thank you that nothing or no one can ever, 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 ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Lord, we know that one of your attributes is wrath, but I'm so glad the Bible doesn't say that you are wrath, wrath, wrath. You are holy, holy, holy. And we thank you that you're also grace, 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 and love, love, love. We worship you today in spirit and in truth. Our concern, Lord, is what you get from us in this service and not so much what we can get from you. 
But we do know, Lord, that when we give to you what is yours, as we sang, every breath belongs to you. And today we just get to acknowledge it and get our minds right and recognize where our help and our hope comes from. Lord, we believe that when we worship you and we lift up our heads, we believe the King of glory will come in. Lord, come into each situation. Come into each life, each home, in ways that only you can and meet the needs of your people. You are a personal God as much as you are a God of the nations. Thank you that one of your names is Emmanuel. Be with those who are struggling today with despair. Be with those who are struggling today with sickness in their bodies. Lord, we know that you're a healer. Would you stop on by and just touch those who are afflicted? Be with those, Lord, who are concerned about how they're going to make ends meet and how they're going to pay bills. Remind them that you are Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And if you brought them this far by faith, you will take them the rest of the way. Lord, open up doors that no man can shut and shut doors that no man can open. May we recognize that all of our steps are ordered by you, even when things get out of order. May we trust you. And when we can't hold on, may we realize that you're holding on to us. We bless you and we thank you. Lord, speak now through your word. We need a word in these unsure and uncertain times. We need a word. We need a rhema. So Lord, help me. Use me in spite of myself to speak a word that probably won't get spoken in many pulpits across the country. But that's okay. I don't get judged by them. I stand before you and I preach what you tell me to preach. So help your people hear what thus saith the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The 1619 Project by Nicole Hannah-Jones was published in August of 2019 commemorating the 400th anniversary of when enslaved, some would say indentured Africans first came to North America, Jamestown, Virginia, 1619. And so the 1619 Project was written by this Pulitzer Prize winning uh, dynamic woman, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And it was controversial to some, but healing to many others because she chose to center um, the enslaved in the narrative of American history. She chose to take historical facts and call attention to things that normally have not gotten attention in the way history is taught in this country. In other words, she said, let me tell a fuller story. And centering black Americans does not mean that she was denigrating white Americans. She just was telling a side that we normally do not get to hear. And as a result of this piece that was in the New York Times, um, her school, the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, um, put her offer for tenure as a professor on hold. They put it on hold because of how, although some loved this editorial, there were others who did not like it. And because of that, they put her tenure on hold for a couple of months.
But once it was offered to her because of pressure that was coming in from around the country, and especially pressure from the student body, mainly African-Americans, saying that she was being treated unjustly to not receive tenure, she was finally given tenure by the school. But she chose to reject that tenure. And here's the lesson in it all. Go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. They just wanted to tolerate her, not celebrate her. And so she and Brother Coates are going to be taking their uh, wonderful intellectual capital to a historically black college in order to teach and to be honored. You see, the 1619 Project inspired this 1619 sermon series that I just started last week. You see, atrocities done in the past affect the present. If I were to take a boulder and drop it in a body of water, there would be ripples that would go up. And in 1619, a boulder was dropped in our society in what would become the United States of America and the ripple effect of racial difference and the ripple effect of slavery and segregation still affect this country to this day. And as a preacher, it's my desire that if I can show you the connection between the past and the present, we all can help change the direction. Because if we can see the connection, as Dante, my son, rapped about in his song, Do You Care? We can all see the direction. So for this series, I have selected various 1619 passages from the Bible. 1619 passages. Last week, we were in 2 Kings 1619, and we were looking at the founding fathers last week, and the question was, what we found, or what have we found about the founding fathers from 2 Kings 1619, and we looked briefly at the life of Ahaz, and how the Bible told the truth about him, uh, and the Bible tells the truth about everyone. The Bible tells the truth about leaders, kings in the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. It tells the truth about Herod. It tells the truth about Pilate. So why can't we tell the truth about George Washington? <laughs> why can't we tell the truth about Thomas Jefferson? Why can't we even tell the truth about Abraham Lincoln? So that was last week. And today, we find ourselves in Deuteronomy. 1619. So although this is a topical sermon, you know I am a contextual preacher, so we'll hit the context of Deuteronomy in a minute, but let's read verse 19, where it says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Did you read what I just read? That, that, that's Deuteronomy 16, 19. So permit me to put a tag on this text. And let's call this message today, is it justice or is it just us? <laughs> I, I know somebody gonna go with me today, right? Is it justice or is it 
just us. This is Strong Tower Bible Church, right? And, and, and our inception from the beginning, God made us multiracial, primarily with a black-white binary in the South. And our vision is to experience God's diverse kingdom, but also to expand it and even explain it. So today, based on the word of God and the vision he's given this church and even the culture that he's given us, I've got to talk about some stuff that most folk don't like to talk about. But nobody made you come this morning and nobody made you tune in this morning. <laughs> so I hope that you'll hang with me. In 1984, 1984, when I was in the 10th grade, at Milford Mill High School in Baltimore County. A movie came out called Beat Street. Beat Street. This movie focused on the budding and burgeoning rap culture that was beginning to blossom in the Bronx, which is in New York City. So, so this movie uh, was talking about the rap culture, rap culture consisting of uh, graffiti or spray painting tags on trains. It was illegal, but that was part of the culture. Uh, break dancing was part of the culture of hip hop, as well as emceeing, where someone would get on the microphone and begin to rap. So you had these things as part of the culture, and this movie captured that budding rap culture in New York City in 1984. As a matter of fact, not long after this movie, I would begin my rap career in the halls and in the lunchroom of Milford Mill High School. Now don't laugh, don't laugh, don't laugh, because God used rap music to get me closer to him. God used rap music to get me into the ministry. God used rap music to get me to Nashville, Tennessee, and God used rap music to lead me to become a pastor of a multiracial church in Nashville, Tennessee. So don't sleep on rap music, because <laughs> God can use anything to get you to where he wants you to be. But that was 1984, and there was a soundtrack that accompanied the movie, and it was called Beach Street as well. And it featured various artists on this soundtrack. I'm about to go on eBay and get me the vinyl to this because I still have a record player at home. Got to get this in my collection. Uh, uh, but one of the groups featured on that album was Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five. See, some of y'all can go back a little bit. Am I right about that? Some of y'all can, others, others, what are you talking about? But, but, but Grandmaster Melly Mel and the Furious Five, they had the title track to the album. And they even wrapped it in the movie. And Melly Mel says in one line of this seven minute song, where he rapped for probably six minutes of the seven minutes, he says, uh, I'm caught up in a rat race, looking for my own space. There's gotta be a better place for you and me. There's pie in the sky and an eye for an eye. Some people gotta die just to be free. When you stand for justice, what do you find? You find just us on the unemployment line. You find just us sweating from dawn to dusk. There's no justice, it's huh, just us. That was Melly Mel. Uh, uh, did any of y'all ever hear that song before? Can you just raise your hand? I see the old heads. The old heads 
have it. I see, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. <laughs> Melly Mel said, when you stand for justice, what do you find? You find just us on the unemployment line. You find just us sweating from dawn to dusk. There's no justice. It's just us. Poetry in motion. Well, in the same year, President Ronald Reagan signed the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984. I said in the same year, President Reagan signed the Comprehensive Crime Control Act and it expanded penalties towards possession of marijuana and established a system of mandatory minimums. Mandatory minimum is Basically, if you get in trouble and you commit a particular kind of crime, that your sentence is already determined before you even go to trial. And so they would have these, these standards called mandatory minimums. And Reagan was known for criminalizing drug users during his pres presidency, especially black drug users. He did this by increasing the penalty for crack cocaine possession over that of powdered cocaine possession. Because crack cocaine was said to be the drug of those in inner cities, whereas powdered cocaine was a white collar drug. It was a drug that was used in the high rises and in the boardrooms. And, and so there was this discrepancy, or rather this disparity between how one was judged over the other when basically they are the same except crack cocaine is cooked differently. Uh, some baking powder and other things are added to, to, to make crack cocaine. But when crack hit the hood, black folks hit the jails. I said when crack hit the hood, black folks hit the jails and Reagan's policies go back to the war on drugs under President Richard Nixon. The war on drugs led to soaring arrest rates that disproportionately targeted African Americans who were lumped together and placed together in these places called ghettos because of uh, racist policies called redlining, and because blacks did not have access to loans like their white brothers and sisters, they were forced to live in these low-income communities called ghettos. But those ghettos would be places that would be under great surveillance by the police and the government. Because Richard Nixon knew that black people needed to be targeted by his policies. And in this time, black people didn't get justice, we got just us. Drugs were mysteriously brought in from overseas and planted in black communities where the drug dealer and the drug user were racially profiled and eventually arrested. Nixon used the war on drugs to criminalize and disrupt black communities. John Ehrlichman, who was President Nixon's domestic policy chief, 
this is what he said about that whole time of the war on drugs. He said, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. In other words, there was corruption in the government that there was a plan. It wasn't a conspiracy. It was reality to plant these drugs there, to get a need of chemical dependency on these substances, and then to roll into these communities and arrest. And on the news, you would see dozens, if not hundreds, of black men being held at gunpoint with hands behind their back, handcuffed and put into police wagons and taken to jail because it was painting a picture that black people were drug addicts, that black people were drug users, that black people were criminals. And if you keep seeing this perspective, if, if they're giving you a narrative and not necessarily the truth, then you will believe the narrative that all black people are like this and that black people are the only ones who have drug problems and drug issues. You see, if you're standing outside by a river and you're admiring its beauty as it rushes mightily downstream and towards a waterfall and you're standing there beholding it and taking it in. But then all of a sudden you see five young people in the water going by and they're waving their hands and they're asking for help. They're crying out for assistance. So before they meet their doom, you will do your best to pull them out of that river. You'll grab them, you'll, you'll reach for them, you'll, you'll do whatever you can because you don't wanna see them fall to their demise and their doom. So after you rescue those five and you dry them off and you pat yourself on the back, you look up again and there are five more in the street. What do you do? I know, I know. You gotta deal with the immediate again. I, I, I gotta rescue these who are in this river heading towards the waterfall about to die. I gotta rescue them, but I also need to say, wait a minute. I need to find out why they keep falling into this river in the first place. And then I might need to ask the question, who might be pushing them into the river to need assistance immediately to get out of the river. So yeah, I'm gonna help you get out, but I'm gonna walk my behind upstream. And I'm gonna find out why they keep falling in. And I'm gonna find out who is pushing them in. Because there was a man by the name of uh, Victor Hugo who once said that where there is darkness, crimes will be committed. And the one who commits the crime is guilty. But so is the one who creates the darkness. You see, we always want to deal with the criminal, but we don't want to deal with the ones who are setting the systems in place to benefit off the criminals. Because you do know that jail is a big corporate business venture in this country. More on that in a moment. You see, time will not permit me to go upstream to 1857 this morning. I don't have the time when a slave named Dred Scott, whose owner had taken him into a free territory. Dred said, now wait a minute, I, I, I'm in a free territory, so I'm going to stay up in here because I'm free in a free territory. Well, his case ended up going to local court 
and then to the Supreme Court because he obviously had a good uh, a presupposition there that if I'm in a free territory, then that should make me free. Well, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court and it was ruled against him seven to two that he was not free because he was in a free territory. And so Chief Justice Roger Taney came along and said, let me put a stamp on the seven to two verdict and let me say this. This is coming from the Chief Justice. In the opinion of the court, the legislation and histories of the times and the language used in the Declaration of Independence show that neither the class of persons who had been imported as slaves nor their descendants, whether they had become free or not, were then acknowledged as a part of the people, nor intended to be included in the general words used in that memorable instrument. What's he saying? Black people built this country, but this country wasn't built for black people. That's what he was saying. I don't care if you're in free territory. The Declaration of Independence was not written for you. When we brought you to this country, we had no intention and no idea of including you into the commonwealth of the common people. You're just help. Matter of fact, you're chattel, you're animals. You're three-fifths of a person. You barely have a soul, and that soul will evangelize with the plantation gospel. And so, black people, y'all built the country, but this country wasn't built for you. He goes on to say they had far more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior, inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. That's what the chief justice is saying. He's saying that there's nothing about a black man that a white man needs to respect. That was a boulder dropped in 1857 that still has rippling effects to this day in 2021. And then he says, we're doing the Negro a favor by allowing him to be our slaves because we went over there to Africa to rescue them and bring them here. So this white supremacist ideology, this myth of moral goodness in white folks, that they just gotta rescue black folks from Africa and bring them here and place them within the peculiar institution of slavery and do them a favor, that was the mindset of 1857 and the Civil War would occur just a few years after that. But what if I went upstream to 1865 to see how the ratification of the 13th Amendment came about? Because the Emancipation Proclamation didn't set the enslaved free. It was the 13th Amendment that actually set the enslaved free and that happened in 1865. And as it put to death the institution of slavery, it opened up the door to a different kind of slavery called mass incarceration. And so there were things that were baked and embedded into the laws of the land that would allow certain people to get over and other people to barely get by. 
You know, when I was a kid, I would play these video games, and, and, and when Madden would come out, you not only had to go get Madden back in the day, but you also had to go find the cheat codes because the cheat codes would allow you to do things with the video game uh, that, that would make you a super player, if you will. And if you had the knowledge of the cheat code, you could not only beat your partner that you're playing, but you could also beat the system or beat the machine, beat the game itself. And in America, we went from the slave codes to the black codes. Uh, these were codes that didn't help us win. These were codes that helped the slave master and the oppressor win in the game of life in America. There, there were cheat codes that white folks had. And so after the 13th Amendment came into being, uh, Reconstruction was short-lived. Reconstruction came in and we saw black people ascending to places of governmental power. But there were folks who said, wait a minute, now we, we can't have that. I know we freed them and didn't give them 40 acres or a mule, but somehow they are ascending and they are now passing laws and in places, of, we've got to stop that. So when reconstruction ended, the terror era began. And the Ku Klux Klan and other hate groups rose up in order to stop progress of African Americans at that time. So there would be vagrancy laws. Vagrancy, you're just hanging around, loitering. Vagrancy, because you don't have a home or neighborhood. Uh, we were just freed, six million of us with no plan. But then here comes the law saying, you're vagrants, so therefore we're gonna lock you up. Then there were literacy tests. Read this sign, if you can't read this sign, we're gonna throw you in jail. Well, reading for me was against the law. I was not taught to read. So the law was not working for me, it was working against me. And then there would be these lawful arrests because of the vagrancy laws and the literacy law. So, so now, you would be arrested lawful. And this is why black folks have come to realize that just because something is lawful or legal, that doesn't mean that it's right. So just because it's a law doesn't mean that it's right. And then we would go to court and we would have unfair trials with a jury of our peers and none of them looked like us. And George Stinney and others with a little 14-year-old boy accused of raping a little white girl and he is sentenced to death. He's so small that they have to put books on the uh, electric chair so that he can sit up and so that his head can then have the electric cone placed upon it. Uh, and these are the images, these are the things. This was the reality. And so it just wasn't about justice, man. It just seemed like it was just us. And once blacks were put into jail, convict leasing programs began. And so slavery occurred all over again by taking masses of blacks and leasing them out to former plantation owners who just received government subsidies to rebuild their plantations. Oh boy. And then blacks somehow became lifetime felons. The law says that when you commit these crimes, you are now a felon and you are a felon for life, making it hard to find a job when you get out. That you have to put felon on your application. Uh, you can't vote 
when you are a felon. And to get your voting rights back, you've got to go through a whole lot to get it, which means you can't get ahead. So there were systems and things put in place, which means that civil rights attorney Brian Stevenson was correct when he said that slavery did not end in 1865, it just evolved. It just evolved. So in 2021, black people are doing jail time for selling marijuana, whereas white people are making millions from selling marijuana. Did you get what I just said? There are people in jail right now for either having marijuana on them or intent to distribute marijuana, but there are states around the country where marijuana has been legalized and now people are making millions of dollars off of marijuana, whereas People who look like me are still in prison because of having an ounce or selling marijuana. Something is wrong with the scales in this country. You see, in 2021, white kids get treatment for addiction to meth, whereas black kids get arrested for smoking marijuana. In 2021, Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years for murdering George Floyd. That wasn't a mandatory minimum with him. The mandatory minimum was 40 years for manslaughter as a police officer or second degree murder, whichever one it was. I think second degree, second degree murder. So the mandatory minimum is supposed to be 40 years. But the judge determines he gets 22 and a half and he can get out in 15 years with good behavior. Something doesn't add up because when I look at the fact that Kilantre Bearfield got a 34-year sentence for killing a police dog named Jethro. Man, something's wrong with the system. How are they going to give a brother 34 years for shooting a dog and they give a police officer 22 years, uh, uh, taking down to 15 years for killing a black man in cold blood, keeping his knee on his neck for over nine minutes and had that thing not been filmed? That would be no arrest, yet alone a conviction. I just want to know, was that justice or was it just us? We're in the kingdom of God, and I'm still black. Being in the kingdom of God doesn't mean I become clear, invisible, spiritual, to the point that I am not connected with what happens in the earth. I'm saved to the bone, love the Lord, got the Holy Ghost and all that. But I don't get harassed because I'm Christian. I get harassed because I'm black. And if we're too spiritual to understand that, we're not spiritual at all. That's why Amos 5.15 comes along. Oh, I got to go to the book. I got to go to the book. Amos 5.15 says, establish justice in the gate. Oh, yeah, I got to hang my hat here for a second. Establish justice in the gate. The word justice occurs 28 times in the Old Testament, 28 times. The Bible says much about justice, but I wonder why our pulpits say so little. <laughs> you see, the word justice literally means right or righteous. So listen to me, justice, what is justice? It is right or righteous. The word justice or to be just means to be right 
or to be righteous. Which is why when you read the Bible, the words just, justice, justified, they are used interchangeably and even synonymously with the word righteous. Because to be justified is to be made righteous. To be righteous is to be just. So you can't separate these words. Matter of fact, in Psalm 97, verse 2, it says the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. And if we keep looking at this and righteousness and justice, we got to go to Calvary because at Calvary, God received justice. We receive righteousness. Uh, it went over your head, but, but look at it when you get home. Put it in re rewind. So therefore, to do justice is to do the right thing. <laughs> Spike Lee was right. Just do the right thing. To do justice is to do what is right. To do justice is to do the right thing at all times for all people. So injustice must mean that you're not doing the right thing at all times, especially towards certain people. That's injustice. Justice, doing the right thing. And I found that Christians are more concerned with the noun of being just than with the verb of doing justice. Oh, we love, oh, I'm justified. Oh, we, we preach those doctrines and we should. But there's also this thing of doing justice and not just being just or being justified. That uh, focus on the individual is not necessarily kingdom, it's more a meritocracy. It's more an American way of I get mine and it's all about me, myself, and I. And this individualism, this meritocracy has stepped into our view of seeing the kingdom when the Bible uh, is written by oppressed people to a community of oppressed people about an oppressed savior who would come and save that community from their oppression. But somehow we just make it about having Jesus in my heart. And we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And then we can get so sanctimonious and self-righteous where we say that if our neighbor is doing drugs, if our neighbor is gay or lesbian, if our neighbor is a criminal, then we don't love our neighbor as if God said, let me put a condition on what loving your neighbor is like. He said, just love your neighbor. Why? Because God is love. And God demonstrated his love towards all of us in that while we were sinning, Christ died for us. That's why the gospel is good news to sinners. Oh my, oh my, help me Lord, help me Lord. And so therefore to administer justice is to mete out the right punishment at all times for all people who have been found guilty. So to administer justice at the gate, at the gate, justice, establish justice at the gate. Because for the Jews, the gate was city hall. For the Jews, it was an outdoor courthouse where business and legal transactions occurred at the gate, at the gate. And so if you had to buy property, you would go to the gate with the elders so that the transaction could go forward and it would be legal. Legal. 
If there was an issue of property, if you had a case, you would go to the gate. The gate, it was city hall for the Jews. It was also the place where people accused of crimes were tried, prosecuted, and even executed at the testimony of two or three witnesses. I'm, I'm talking about the gate. At the gate, there would also be a set of scales to conduct business. Unfortunately, because of that, bribes would become commonplace. So in order to establish justice at the gate, the judges had to be honorable people who did the right thing. They had power, and their power impacted people who had less power, so therefore they needed to judge right, righteously. But if a bribe comes, justice is perverted. Proverbs 11.1. 1. Dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So God is saying, I hate it when the scales are off. Because when I walk up, they put a heavier weight on the scale. So now I got to pay the black tax. When I come up, the price goes up when I come up. When I list my house, I got to take down every picture of my family in the house so that the price doesn't go down as far as the value by people who set the value of the house. But to be wise as a serpent, I'm going to start putting white folk pictures up in my house <laughs> so the price can go up. These scales, God says, I hate unjust scales. And in America and around the world, justice is personified as a woman named Lady Justice. And she is normally pictured with scales in one hand and a sword in the other and a blindfold over her eyes. The blindfold is there to say that she will not show partiality in how she judges cases. She has the sword if she needs it, Romans chapter 13, but the scales that the weights will be just and balanced for everyone and there will be no partiality showed towards a particular person, sex, or people group. And so she's blindfolded, but, but for some reason, Lady Justice in America, that blindfold don't work. Those who come from a heritage of privilege tend to believe the legal system and other systems that they can be trusted if you come from privilege. But those of us who come from a heritage of oppression tend to believe the legal system and other systems cannot be trusted. As a result, the oppressed may trust God, but they don't trust man's systems. Because racism is still embedded in American systems today. The system of health care, the system of education, the system of housing, uh, the system of real estate and marketing, the system of entertainment, the system of banking, the system of ecclesiastical worship. Racism is embedded in every system of America. And for those who think that it's not that way anymore, I got to ask you, do you believe it was once that way? 
That's for, do you believe it once was that way? If not, we got receipts to prove it. We can go to every state, especially in the South, and look at their charters from back in the day and see how they felt about people who looked like me. So, so, so it, we got receipts. Uh, uh, when you look at why they got into the Civil War and left the Union, they believed in the domination and the supremacy of white folk, okay? And the inferiority of black folk. We, we got receipts. So, so did it ever happen? Okay. When did it stop? It stopped when uh, uh, Martin Luther King came, right? Is that when it stopped? No, that ain't when it stopped. It got better, but that's not when it stopped. It's still going on. Why do we think the sin of racism is just going to stop? But the sin of fornication, that ain't going to stop till Jesus come. The sin of perjury and lying, that ain't going to stop till Jesus come. The sin of coveting and lust, that won't stop till Jesus come. But racism, oh, that stopped. And I got all this stuff in my heart, like Jesus said. It's not what comes, goes into a man that makes him impure. It's what comes out of a man. The stuff that's in his heart. We can have adultery in our heart and murder in our heart, but not prejudice, not, not bias, not bigotry. I ain't got none of that. That's white supremacy. That, that's the belief right there that you think you're morally good. When the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But for some reason, we, we got to move the goalposts to make ourselves feel better. But God is not mocked. And neither is this preacher right here. And I'm speaking the truth in love. But like Paul said to the Galatians, he said, uh, have I become your enemy because I've spoken the truth to you? And all these years, I've had white people leave out of here saying, that's an angry black man over there. Number one, uh, uh, you can be angry and not sin. Uh, number two, there's some stuff that you should get angry about. But if you say I'm angry, I got to call up Harold Melvin in the blue notes. If you don't know me by now, you don't know me. You don't know me. <laughs> you think I'm angry? <laughs> there's some brothers you don't want to talk to. <laughs> no. To deny that racism is still embedded in systems is to deny history, it is to deny reality while maintaining the evil force of white supremacy. Brian Stevenson goes on to say, the narrative of racial difference developed as a defense for slavery persisted after emancipation through evolving systems of inequality. Today, that narrative has become justification for inhumane treatment of criminals that is deeply rooted in the dehumanizing rhetoric of enslavement, racial terror, and Jim Crow. The civil rights movement addressed discrimination in voting, education, employment, housing, and public accommodations, but left criminal justice largely untouched. In many states, the majority of imprisoned people are black and brown, and the impact of race on the death penalty is well documented. And the death penalty in America is a direct descendant of lynching in America. So if justice cannot be established at the gate, innocent people will suffer, but worse, they will die. And before Amos ever came along and said that justice must occur at the gate, Moses said it first. So go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 16. 
Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. Moses says, the great lawgiver, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your what? Gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. And what does just mean? Right. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous when they're on the stand testifying. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And so Moses is telling Joshua, you got to get the courthouse right. You got to get the scales right. Because Proverbs 14, 34 says, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. So the people of God, you who know Yahweh, who have the moral law and the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law and the social laws, you are to be a peculiar people amongst all of these adulterous and idolatrous nations because you do things differently because you serve the one true and living God. So therefore, the gates, justice is going to be right. Look at the words Moses used. He used the word judges, officers, gates, just, judgment, uh, a bribe, partiality, righteous. Look at the words he's using. Look at who Moses spoke to. He's speaking to the Joshua generation. They're the ones whose parents died in the wilderness. Uh, Deuteronomy literally means second law. Because when Moses went up to the mountain in Exodus, he came down with the law and gave his generation the law. But that generation perished because of their unbelief and their disobedience. And Joshua's generation was raised up to go in. So before they went in, Moses said, I can't go in there with y'all, but I'm going to give you the law the second time. So that y'all know what God requires, and God requires justice at the gate. But let me go back, because when you read Deuteronomy, he's also telling that younger generation about the history of the Jewish people. Because a lot of times, young people want to go forward, but they don't want to go back well enough to understand their history. Why we got to talk about that? You got to know your history, because if you don't know where you came from, you really don't know where you're going. And if you don't know your history, history has a way of repeating itself. So he got to tell them young millennials some stories. And he starts telling them about, you know how God met your parents' generation over here. God helped your parents' generation over here. And God disciplined your parents right here. So when you go in, I need you to remember God. Because when you, you get them houses you didn't build and you find them wells you didn't dig, don't forget God now. And make sure. Joshua, you and your generation, y'all do the right thing at the gate because society is built on justice and righteousness. In 1967, Martin Luther King Jr. said, in 1863, the Negro was granted freedom from physical slavery through the Emancipation Proclamation, but he was not given land 
to make that freedom meaningful. At the same time, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the Midwest and the West, which meant that the nation was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor while refusing to do it for its black peasants from Africa who were held in slavery 244 years. And this is why Frederick Douglass would say that emancipation for the Negro was freedom to hunger, freedom to the winds and rains of heaven, freedom without roofs to cover their heads. It was freedom without bread to eat, without land to cultivate. It was freedom and famine at the same time. And it's a miracle that the Negro has survived. Therefore, since 1619, most black people have looked at America and asked the question, is it justice or is it just us? We know our Native American brothers and sisters also got a word of testimony. We know what happened to Asian folks who brought it here, uh, Latino folks. But, but black folks, when we look at how we were imprisoned cruelly, for over two centuries, we, we do ask, is it justice or is it just us? When we look at the wage disparity, we ask, is it justice or is it just us? When we look at the wealth gap between black families and white families, we ask, is it justice or is it just us? When we look at the inferior schools that tend to be in our neighborhoods, we ask, is it justice or is it just us? When we look at the high arrest rates, we ask, is it justice or is it just us? When we look at the fact that we have shorter lifespans and we're prone to hypertension and diabetes and, and we have food deserts in our community and we have liquor stores on every corner, we ask, is it justice? Or is it just us? Jewish activist and writer Tim Wise said, there has been denial by whites in every generation in regards to how racist history, how racist society is, excuse me. In 1850, white folks denied. In 1890, there was denial. 1930, there was denial. 1963, there was denial. In every generation, members of the dominant group have said there is no problem. And in every generation without fail, they have been wrong. But in every generation, black people who have been the targets of that oppression have said there is a problem. And in every generation without fail, they have been right. What are the odds that people of color who have never gotten it wrong have suddenly lost their minds? Counter to that, what are the odds that white folks who have never gotten it right have somehow became highly perceptive about racial discrimination? But if my life doesn't matter, my voice won't matter. My experience won't matter. Because a boulder was dropped in 1857 that said that this democracy wasn't made for me. You don't have to respect me. When the law, when the judge is at the gates, chief justices at the gate have such belief systems. So when we consider justice for Tamir Rice, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Trayvon Martin, it seems like it's just us. And I'm your brother and I hope you love me. When we consider justice for Freddie Gray, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Eric Garner, it seems like it's just us. And we stand alone. We weep alone. We lament alone. 
And when Eric Garner was killed in Staten Island, New York, he died on July 17, 2014. Choked because he was selling loose cigarettes. Choked to death. And I remember the day because July 17th is my birthday. And I remember that day. He was murdered on a Thursday. I came here and I preached from this pulpit right here in this location a sermon entitled, I Know Someone. I came from Psalm 22 about how Jesus, David was speaking prophetically, and how Jesus was surrounded by these bulls while he was on the cross. The bulls, the Roman guard, the police officers who had just brutalized him. And I I, I made a a connection. I used my theological and sanctified imagination to bring Psalm 22 and and the experience of Jesus into 2014 with Eric Garner to say that he had been circled by bulls of Bashan. And I had been choked to death. Well, on that day, a mass white exodus occurred at Strong Tower Bible Church. We used to be, let's see here, about 40% white at that time. But after hearing me preach that message, I had a white lady tell me who had adopted black children that she don't come to church to hear that kind of stuff. But because she was centering her whiteness, she couldn't think about her brothers and sisters who did come to church and need to hear a word like that. It was all about her, which is what white supremacy will do. And they laughed and said, that's an angry black man. And they took some black folk with them too. But guess what? We kept on preaching. We kept on going forward because the greatness of a church is not about the people who attend. The greatness of a church is the fact that it's built on the rock named Jesus Christ. (laughs) And and watch this. And for the ones who left, God brought some other whites in who said, will you teach us? Will you show us? Will Will you help expand and explain God's diverse kingdom as we enjoy this kingdom together. Psalm 133. Oh, God, God, God is good. God is good. He's, he's faithful. And by the way, everybody didn't love Martin Luther King back in the day. Again, look at history. Polls said white folks were against them and black folks. But now everybody loved one. Well, not everybody. Arizona and other places. But anyway, um, <laughs> A white man by the name of Daniel Hill. White man. I got to say white man because I want you to throw a shoe at me. Throw a shoe at me for other stuff. But a white man said, what is privilege? White privilege? White privilege is the ability to walk away. That's white privilege. When you don't get your way, you walk away. When things don't go the way you thought, you walk away. When you get offended, you walk away away. When it gets tough and and I don't want to hear, you walk away. But I can't walk away. My kids can't walk away. But again, I thank God for a God who stays with me. And I thank God for white friends who stay with us in the trenches and we stay with them when their family starts calling them in lovers. Uh, Anyway, anyway, y'all don't want to get real this morning. Okay, all right, let let me work to my clothes. Uh, When we consider justice for both of them, John, it it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Sandra Bland, 
it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for the Charleston Nine, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Tatiana Jefferson, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Terrence Crutcher, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Elijah McClain, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Philando Castile, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Alton Sterling, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Ahmaud Arbery, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for Breonna Taylor, it seems like it's just us. When we consider justice for George Floyd, it seems like it's just us. And when we consider justice for the 229 black people killed by police since the murder of George Floyd last year, it seems like it's just us. But here's the deal. White folk nervous because truth is coming out. They nervous and so they say, in your schools, y'all can't teach this stuff. We don't want Seth feeling like he's guilty of people's past racism. Uh, so, so you can't teach this stuff here. But, but let me help white folk out that's watching. Not the ones who are here. The ones who are here, boom. Uh, but the ones who are watching. Got some good news for you. Black America is not seeking revenge on white America. I just got to say that. Now, now, I'm not saying there ain't a few Nat Turners in the group, but I, I'm here to say that the majority of us, we're not seeking revenge on white America. Why? Because we really believe in God. The faith of the slave has always been greater than the religion of the slave master. We knew Jesus for real. And we believe that vengeance is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. So when God says, don't take matters into your own hands, leave room for him, vengeance is his, we step back and say, Lord, do your thing. Because the blood is crying from the ground. So we won't take matters into our own hands. And if you think this is too hard, uh, pastor, uh, uh, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. But there is still Judgment. There is still a judgment day. And Jesus comes along in Luke chapter 18. He tells a parable about a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. And a widow in that city came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. So here Jesus is saying not every judge is right with God. This judge didn't fear God. That, that's what Jesus said. And the Bible says, and he would not listen to her for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, in other words, she's getting on my nerves, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect? who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Don't mess over God's people. Made in the image of God. There are consequences for that. So we leave room for God to avenge speedily. You say that's not enough. Well, if you go over to the book of Revelation, there's a group of persecuted believers. I believe it's in chapter 6. They've been beheaded because of the faith. And they're under an, or they're by an altar. And they're saying to God, how long? 
long until you avenge us. And the Lord is like, just hold tight. There will be vengeance for you. And so white America doesn't need to fear black folk. White America needs to fear a holy and living God who is a consuming fire who will not be mocked. So you can brush it under the table all you want, but on judgment day, God is pulling the ultimate receipts out. Hmm. This is why we have to consider someone else when we're going through. I know we say, Lord, is it just us? We have to say, no, it's not just us. There are people all around the world who are suffering persecution. Many of them because of their faith and not just for their skin. But when we consider someone else, we get to say, it wasn't just us. Listen, it was also Jesus. Ah, it just wasn't us. It was also Jesus. Why? He was born poor. And he became a refugee when his family fled into Africa. He grew up poor. And Jesus lived poor. He had no place to lay his head. He ministered to people who lived out in the margins. Which is why he would say to his disciples, go out into the highways and the byways and Compel them to come into my house. So Jesus said, I am going to center the margins in my ministry. And not just center the folks who are used to being centered. He was a friend of sinners. He fed the hungry. He clothed the naked. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He satisfied the thirsty with living water. He touched the unclean and he allowed the unclean to touch him. He presented grace to prostitutes, tender mercies to tax collectors. He set the captives free, and he bound up broken hearts. He preached about a good Samaritan. He preached about a poor beggar who went to heaven and a rich man who went to hell. He preached about a widow in Luke 18 who needed justice. He confronted the religious syndicate. He called them sons of the devil. He turned their money tables over and he cleansed his father's house. He was called names. He was profiled. He was lied on. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was jailed. He was violently brutalized. He was unjustly tried and wrongfully sentenced to the death penalty. It wasn't just us. It was also Jesus. And in the landmark book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, theologian James Cone said, in the mystery of God's revelation, black Christians believe that just knowing that Jesus went through an experience of suffering in a manner similar to theirs gave them faith that God was with them, even in suffering on a lynching tree. Just as God was present with Jesus in suffering on the cross, which was also called a tree. But I'm so glad that that's not how the story ended. Because they took our Savior's body and put it in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, he got up. So in conclusion, what, what, what do you do with a message like this besides think? Thinking is good. 
Because the more you think, the more you'll think. Let, let, let me think and see God's hand in history. That God was in control even when things were out of control. That, that he was moving things to a redemptive end. And so I'm going to think about history. I'm, I'm not going to try to deny history, sugarcoat history, whitewash history. No, no, no. We're going to look at the truths of history and behind it all see God. And we're going to determine that justice is not simply an oppressed thing or a liberal thing or a government thing or a tomorrow thing. No, we will determine that justice is a Jesus thing, a, a biblical thing, a church thing and a right now thing. So what do you do with this message, especially for my white brothers and sisters? Use your life to incarnate into the lives of others. Use your ears to listen. When oppressed people tell you about their oppression, believe them. Use your heart to feel. Because if injustice burdens your brother or sister, it ought to burden you. Use your voice to speak truth to power. And like the woman in Luke 18, keep on speaking. Be persistent. Just don't talk in a vacuum. Talk in public. Use your influence to be an advocate. Use your mind to learn true American and biblical history. Use your vote to see change occur on the local level and not just the federal level. Use your resources to invest into the powerless. Use your time to start good trouble. Use your privilege to help the less privileged. Use your feet to march in protest and to march to the courthouses. And then use your hands to hold up the bloodstained banner. Father, thank you for being a God of justice. We pray that there would be justice in the gates, in the courtrooms and courthouses in our country. We pray that people would have the courage to confront age-old laws that would keep certain people down and other people benefiting from them being down. This mass incarceration system where people are making money off the backs of inmates, where people are getting sentences that are not just nor fair, where communities are being over-policed and targeted, where Officials are not taking responsibility for planting certain things in communities and denying communities access to equity and opportunities. Lord, we need truth tell us today. And I thank you, Lord, that you're raising up this church just like you did Gideon's army. It was just 300 of them. But boy, did they win a great victory. You don't need a whole lot of people to do a great work. You just need some folk who set on fire willing to be a dog for you. So, Lord, here Strong Tower Bible Church is, where we're trying to experience your kingdom, how good and how blessed it is when we can dwell together in unity. But also, Lord, we're, we're explaining this kingdom. We're, we're taking time to talk about what's going on, the stuff we talk about at our dinner table. And we want to see this kingdom expanded. Because when we read the record, when we read Revelation, there, there, there are people at your throne from every nation, tribe, kindred, and tongue. And so, Lord, help us to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it will not come apart from truth, and it surely won't come apart from justice. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.